Friends, there are three ways to get lost. Do you know what it's like to be lost? We find these three ways in the three parables that Jesus tells us in Luke 15. Now, all three of these are related to one another, and all three are told by Jesus in response to the grumbling of religious leaders. The Pharisees and the legal experts have just indicted Jesus on the grounds of this charge. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. In response, Jesus tells three stories, the last of which we just heard. I hope you were able to see it through the eyes of childlike faith. But since this last one is so familiar to many of us, we'll spend most of our time now with, uh, with the first two. So before we listen to Jesus, let us pray. Lord, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of Jesus our single concern. In your name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of our Lord Jesus from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep, losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost? until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who have no need for repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. The first way to get lost is to be a sheep. A sheep gets lost because it's in the nature of a sheep to get lost. Sheep have a tendency to wander. Sheep have a very bad sense of direction. I'm told that even if you put them in an absolutely perfect environment with everything they need, like green pastures and still waters, sooner or later they will still wander off. Some of you know toddlers like that, yeah? We, too, have something deep down in our nature that makes us wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, the great hymn, Come Thou Fount, confesses. It's in our nature, you see, to get lost. We are directionless creatures on our own. Therefore, we must get directions from someone else. Who will you trust to give you directions? Who can you trust to lead you to the good life? Some of you may know this problem of ours as the doctrine of original sin. Ever since that first human rebellion in God's beautiful garden, ever since then we all have within us an urge to rebel. And rebellion comes in many forms. Remember the reason Jesus tells this parable? He aims 
he aims all three of them at the religious leaders who were grumbling about him eating with sinners. Apparently, according to Jesus, rebellion can take the form of outward religious obedience while inside the heart is rotting with resentment. So we all have within us an urge to rebel, and we rebel in different ways. We have an urge to trust ourselves more than we trust others, to trust our brains to figure out the right way to live more than we trust God to lead the way. Inevitably, and this happens with everyone, inevitably we get lost. It's in our fallen nature to get lost, just as it's in the nature of a sheep to get lost. However, it's in God's nature to find us. We would be doomed to a life of unending searching, searching for meaning, searching for truth, searching for love. And as soon as we think we've found it, our world comes crashing down. The breakup we feared happened. The philosophy we adopted has left us with more questions than answers. Tragedy has struck, and we are deeply unsatisfied and alone. In our searching, there comes a moment when we realize that we are even deeper into the woods than when we first began. You see, we have inherited two things, I think, as members of the human family. First, we have inherited from God, our Creator, a desire to meet our Maker. As Blaise Pascal, 17th century mathematician, said, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every human which cannot be filled by any creative thing, but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus. Or as 4th century St. Augustine so eloquently put it, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This God-shaped desire is why we start searching for the first, in the first place, and it's a common grace we've all been given. But second, we have received something else. We have inherited from our first human parents a disease. This God-given desire puts us on the right quest for happiness and fulfillment, but this human disease gets us going in all the wrong directions. The result is a life of endless searching without a compass. That would be the final lot of all of us in this room, and there would be no way out if we were the only characters in the story of our lives. But there's another character in the story. It's the Good Shepherd. This is the one who searches night and day for those who have wandered off. We are lost deep in the woods, without a compass, in the dark. But the one to whom we belong, the very one we left in the first place, yes, that's the one who has initiated a search and rescue operation for us. And he will not quit until he finds us. Do you know what it's like to be lost? If so, hear this good news. It is deep, deep within God's nature to search for and rescue the lost. Now here's what happens when you are found. Have you experienced this? I know many of you have. When the good shepherd finds you, he lays you on his shoulders. Why does he do this? He puts you on his shoulders, I think, because he knows you do not have the strength to walk home on your own. He knows you've exhausted your energy as you've traveled further away from him. He knows you're exhausted from searching elsewhere. But in an act of 
pure grace. He carries you home without an ounce of judgment. And listen to this. He rejoices over you with singing, the prophet Zechariah says. Laughing with delight, he brings you home to where you belong, where the love is true and the warmth is genuine. And when he comes home with you on his shoulders, he calls together his friends and neighbors and anybody he can find and says, Rejoice with me! It's party time. A festive celebration is in order, for I have found my sheep that was lost. It's in our nature to get lost. The first way to get lost is simply through our fallen human nature. And it happens to all of us in some way or another. But it's in God's nature to find us. That's the first way. The second way to get lost, we discover in Jesus' second parable. The story of a woman who lost one of ten coins. Taking the perspective of that lost coin, if you will, we see that the second way to get lost is by someone else losing us, unintentionally, by someone else losing us. Now, what's the big deal about one little coin? If you lose a quarter, truth is you're not all that concerned, right? Unless you're like me and you need that quarter for an Aldi shopping cart later. You know what I'm talking about? Nothing like that walk of shame, asking for someone for a quarter. We lose a coin, generally not a big deal, right? But as we pay attention to the ancient culture surrounding this story, this woman, we notice that her coins could represent one of two different things. We aren't sure which one. Scholars are divided, but here they are. On the one hand, the coins could represent the family savings. This amounts to about 10 days of wages. Not a lot of savings, so losing one of these coins would be catastrophic. On the other hand, the coins could be connected to an ancient wedding tradition. I described this in the sermon notes, if you want to turn there later or now, if you'd like. Now, in this second case, the ten coins are the gifts the woman has received at her betrothal ceremony, the equivalent to a wedding shower, I suppose. Now, she will, she will wear these coins, according to one commentator, hooked with little hooked with little hooks into her hair at the wedding ceremony, and she must guard them with her life thereafter. In other words, the coins are like a wedding ring, and to lose your wedding ring in those days meant your marriage was doomed. Now, whatever interpretation you adopt, the point is the same. The woman has lost something of terrible significance, and it's her fault. It's not the coin's fault that it was lost, but the woman's. Of course, the woman didn't intend to lose the coin. It happened by accident. This wasn't a moral failure on her part, unless one might argue she was negligent in caring for the coins. But whatever the case, the point is that she lost the coin, and now she must do everything she can to find it. Sometimes things are lost unintentionally through the actions of another. That's the second way we get lost. We can get lost through the unintentional actions of others. Here's how I think that second point applies today. Here's how I think the Spirit of God is speaking through this parable into our contemporary church today. I think the coin represents our youth and young adults. And as the ancient theologian Cyprian once said, in a quote proudly repeated by John Calvin, 
One cannot have God as his father who does not have the church for his mother. Therefore, I think the woman represents the church to whom the coin belongs. And I think the church has lost her youth and young adults, like a woman lost one of her precious coins. She has lost it not because she intended to do so, certainly not, but unintentionally. Nevertheless, the coin is lost, and now she must do everything she can to find it. Incidentally, a group of youth and young adults at Heartland are finishing up today a seven-week discipleship series called You Lost Me, perhaps I should say providentially. You Lost Me is a DVD-based curriculum that Stephanie and I used at our last church. It's based on a book that goes by the same name, and the subtitle of the book is telling, You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. Now the basics are this. One in two young adults leave the church sometime after high school graduation, and only about half of those come back. Those are the facts in America. Now, when you, ta- when you take the time to, to really listen, the various reasons that young adults give for leaving the church can be summed up in one phrase, you lost me. Now, I don't know very many churches, do you, who deliberately tried to lose them. In fact, I don't know of any church that called a meeting and said, now this younger generation, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with them in our church. Let's ensure that half of them leave. No church would ever do this, right? Nevertheless, it's happened. We've lost our precious coins. And now it's time for the church to put on the heart of God and put together a search and rescue plan. How did we lose one and two? The psalmist says one generation should tell of God's works to the next. But it turns out that in telling of God's words to the younger generation, something got lost in translation. You lost me. Is it the content of what we said? Is it the way we said it? Is it what we failed to say or do? Or is it just because youth are prone to wander like the rest of us? Is it because of our secular culture. Perhaps a little bit of all of these, but like the missionaries who failed to translate the gospel into the native tongue of a tribal village, the American church by and large has failed to translate the gospel in a way that makes sense to the world in which young people live. The end result, one in two leave and one in four of those never come back. And I want you to pay attention to what this stirs up in you. When I make the parallel between the church as the woman who has unintentionally lost her coin, the youth, what does this stir up in you? Perhaps anger? Well, it's not my fault. Perhaps a little guilt? Well, I suppose I could have. Perhaps, like me, you feel overwhelmed? Well, I don't even know where to start. Perhaps apathy? So, okay, acknowledge that, take a deep breath, seriously, take a long moment to acknowledge what this stirs up in you, and present it to God, and then roll up your sleeves, for it's time to get to work. You don't see the woman in the parable making excuses, or trying to alleviate her guilt by attributing blame somewhere else. She doesn't have time for that. That coin is far too valuable to get up in all of that. 
Instead, the only thing worth doing is to start looking. Put together a search and rescue team, light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until you find that coin. And when you find it, when we find it, friends, it's party time. A young adult gets burned by the church and then writes it off completely. He still believes in God, and he likes the moral teachings of Jesus, at least some of them. So now he considers himself spiritual but not religious. But he sees a church on mission together, serving the least of these in his community, and he wants to be a part of it through the sacrificial love of a Jesus-centered community of faith. He finds his way back into the church. Friends, when this happens, when the lost coin is found, it's party time. A teenage Christian becomes an agnostic after her once respected pastor had an affair. She doesn't know what to believe anymore, and her heart tells her she just can't know much of anything with certainty. But she has a co-worker who is a gentle, quiet Christian who listens to her raw pain without judgment. The co-worker listens deeply before saying a word. And the girl's story of pain is received with tears of compassion. Now eventually, it took many conversations and a couple of years, but eventually she finds herself once more found by the grace of God. She gratefully reunites to a Jesus-centered community of faith. Friends, when this happens, when the lost coin is found, it's party time. A young man is fascinated by God's creation, and I want to tell you even more about him. He's, he's intrigued by God's creation, by the wonders of, of our world, and so he majors in biology in college. He's not unusual in this. In fact, 52% of youth group teens aspire to science-related careers. But his youth group hardly ever talks about science, and when they did, it always seems to be cast in a negative light. So he gets to college, and he's impressed by his smart professors. The more he learns, the more he leans toward science over faith, if, if he's forced to pick between the two. He has looked through the telescope. He has observed with his own eyes the tremendous healing effects of modern medicine, which has come from studies of science. He has tested the accuracy of scientific instruments with his own hands, and he found them to be true. So he comes to trust the scientific method above all things. Now, one day, he's Googling around the internet, and he thinks back to his time in youth group. So he Googles faith plus science. He comes across a TED Talk by the Oxford biologist Richard Dawkins. Dawkins is the leader of a new atheist movement, and he tries to persuade him that science and faith are incompatible. And what's worse, he tries to persuade him that the church is out to undermine all scientific progress. Now, there's no one at his church he can talk to safely about these questions. So they fester within him, and repressed doubts grow stronger and stronger every day. Eventually, he sees no other rational choice but to adopt the ideas of the new atheist movement. He never tells his parents. Over the years, he becomes a successful biologist, gets married, has a couple kids. But he still feels like something is missing from time to time. There is an ache in his heart, an emotional black hole, a God-shaped vacuum, you might say, and the scientific method can't solve his problems. 
To make matters worse, a close friend dies, and he's utterly depressed by his belief that that's it. That's just the way life is, he tells himself, the circle of life. But that doesn't help with his emotions. He meets a Christian at a local pub, who also happens to be a biologist. He's confused and asks the man how it's possible for him to be both a Christian and a scientist. And at a pub, you might add. How? It's simple. What you call chance, I call the providence of God. What you call an impersonal force, I call a loving father. What you see as a cruel animal kingdom, merely the product of natural selection, I grieve with the Apostle Paul as an effect of the fall. As he says, the whole creation is groaning, awaiting its redemption. You see, I'm a Christian, and I'm a biologist. I see these as complementary. After all, remember the origin of the scientific enterprise? It all began with Christians wanting to know more about their creator God through God's own book of nature. The Christian turned atheist is perplexed. He's never heard such ideas before. And he asks to meet him again. After weeks and weeks of regular meetings and debates, which are generally charitable, and even more importantly, after he, event, after he realizes this man truly cares about his life and becomes his friend, after all of this, he eventually darkens the door of the man's church. And he's surprised to notice a few things. He's surprised to notice that the pastor is well-educated. And he doesn't get the feeling he once got in youth group that he has to check his doubts and his brains at the door. And it takes a long while, and it's quite a roller coaster journey, but soon enough, he founds himself soon enough found by God once more. Friends, the Christian turned atheist has become the Christian turned atheist turned Christian again. God has found him once more. Friends, when this happens, when the lost coin is found, it's certainly party time. So the first way to get lost is through our fallen human nature. And the second way to get lost is through the unintended actions of another. Like the coin in Jesus' parable, I think young adults have been lost by their mother, the church, according to, to loads of research. Therefore, we, the church, must do everything we can to find them. In other words, we must do everything we can to undo what we've done collectively as an American church in the first place, and we must seek them out in love, praying that through the Spirit of God, God might find them once more. Now, how do we do this specifically at, at Heartland Community Church? I don't know, but I'm starting with prayer, and I ask you to join me. Let us pray together that God would show us how to love our youth and young adults more fully, more compassionately, more sincerely. And I need to say this, not to toot anybody's horn, but I don't want to come across the wrong way. I truly, I truly believe, I've been in, I don't know, we've been in what, ten churches? I truly believe this church has done far more than most in terms of loving our youth and young adults. The first time Stephanie and I went to a fish meeting, we were delighted to see a mixture of both compassionate love and wise teaching. Margie and Tim, theirs is a labor of love because God has given them his heart, which is to seek and save the lost. Your work's not vain. We would all do well to follow your lead.
But there's still work to do. Am I right? As long as there is still one more person lost in the dark woods of our community, that means there's still work to do. So I ask you once more, will you pray with me that God will show us all as an entire intergenerational church how to love our youth and young adults more fully? Not just our youth, not, not just our youth and young adults. How might God be calling us to begin a search and rescue mission for all youth and young adults in our community who find themselves deep in the woods and utterly alone and directionless? Are you bold enough to pray for God to get you out of your comfort zone and out of your normal social circles and into the woods to pursue carefully and with intention those who are lost? that they might be found by God. And if you are a youth or a young adult, I ask you to teach us. We are here to listen without judgment, without pat answers. I ask you also to do everything you can to stay engaged. Resist the urge to disconnect. And resist stereotyping older people. Sociologists call this ageism. And it's just as pervasive as racism, though we hardly talk about it. Resist this, and come along together with your church family around the table. So the first way to get lost is through our fallen human nature. And the second way to get lost is through the unintended actions of another. Before we wrap up, there's one more way to get lost that I must at least address briefly. Third, we get lost by trying to find ourselves on our own. This is what we see in the famous story of the prodigal son acted out earlier. Why did the younger son leave home in the first place? I'm not sure, but as the younger son myself, with two older siblings, I suspect he left in order to find himself. Ironically enough, I was the only one in my family who moved out of state and stayed away for a significant period of time. Why did I leave? In order to find myself. I think the young son left in order to escape the dull and boring life at home. He felt trapped by what he considered a repressive way of life, and he wanted to be set free to live a life of delight and pleasure. And there was no, there was no pleasure he denied himself as he sought this freedom. In order to find life's secret of happiness, he cashed out his inheritance early, and he went to find the good life. He left because he thought the key to happiness was unrestrained pleasure-seeking. In short, he left because he wanted to party. But what he didn't know, what he couldn't know without listening to others, was that in his quest to find, he'd only become more and more lost. What he didn't know is that in his journey away from home, he'd only feel more and more isolated and alone. What he didn't know was that the true nature of freedom is not in the absence of boundaries and rules, but in the right boundaries and rules. He was like a fish in water, you see, who felt constrained by his boundaries, and so he ventured out onto the dry land. But once this fish found shore, what happened? It's a silly analogy, I know. He couldn't breathe. He started suffocating, for he was not made for this. He was made to swim. Friends, you and I and the younger brother 
We're made to swim in the vast ocean of God's presence. We were made to flourish in God's creation, growing up into all things, into Christ our Lord. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. And freedom is found not in the absence of boundaries, but in the right boundaries. Just as the boundary of water is essential for the well-being of the fish, so too the boundaries of the Jesus-centered way are essential for the good life. They are gifts to all who desire to flourish and run free. In Jesus, we find that it's not, it's not the desire to party that is wrong. You know that? It's not the desire to party that is wrong. But what's wrong is where we party and the reasons we party. Friends, if anything, our story tells us that God likes a good party. But what makes a good party, according to the Father, is when everyone is home, where they belong, loving one another in true joy and real celebration. But know this, if you run away, when you run away, God is always there. As Paul preaches in Athens, in God we live and move and have our being. So the truth is, you can never really run away from God. Yes, you can ignore ignore him, God permits this, And no, God will not coerce your human will so that you are somehow forced to love him. That's not how God rolls. But what God will do for the lost is this. God will work inwardly in our spirits so that we become more and more dissatisfied with our lostness. And when we come to our senses, when we recognize that we're lost, God woos us and persuades us to come home. And before we are able to get out our well-prepared confession, the Father will interrupt us. Quick, bring out the best robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Friends, there are three ways to get lost. But there is one God who always seems to find us. Jesus once described his mission by saying, I have come to seek and save the lost. May we follow Jesus by doing the same. And soon enough we shall party in the kingdom of God where everyone is at home, where they belong, where the love is true and the warmth is genuine as we rest in the arms of the gracious God, who is God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen.